I'm Philip Anetta, Head of Editorial at Design Anthology. This episode of the podcast is taken from a recent live talk we held at the Lasfit Lounge in Hong Kong to celebrate Issue 30, a special about our hometown. We speak about Hong Kong's historical development as an architecture and design hub and sandbox, about its urbanscape, and about how some designers are making the built environment more community friendly. Thanks again to everyone for coming and thanks again to Lasvit for hosting us in this fantastic space um, and perfect day for being out on the terrace too. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Philip Anetta. I'm the head of editorial at Design Anthology. Um, I'll be your moderator for this talk on architecture and public space. I wanted to start off um, with a really quick anecdote. Um, our office is in Wong Chuk Hung. Um, it's an old industrial area that's uh, having a lot of warehouses and uh, factory spaces repurposed and um, we're very close to One Island South and uh, I was catching a taxi near the office recently and I, I walked around uh, the corner at One Island South to go to the taxi rank but I couldn't walk around the corner because there was a gondola up above for people cleaning windows and across the corner they'd put two sets of bollards with rope in between so you, you couldn't walk on the footpath so I had to, I had to walk around and I, I went and waited for my taxi and as I waited for my taxi, um, I saw a guy coming up the footpath with a trolley full of boxes. And he got up to the rope and looked at the rope and uh, took it down, took the other one down, and just walked around the corner with his trolley. And then everyone else, of course, just started walking around the corner, just ignoring the window cleaners in the gondola up above. At the same time, there was a BMW double parked outside the 7-Eleven. We're near a sports ground too, and this the, the driver had gone into 7-Eleven to get something, left his car double parked, then gone to the sports ground for some reason known only to himself, gone back to his car, took a good few minutes while the traffic waited behind him. Um, this was all watched over by a, by a white delivery van um, with a registration plate that read ASAP. And I thought, if this situation doesn't symbolise public space in Hong Kong, I'm not really sure what is. And it made me think of this topic today, which I, I think is going to be really fascinating. Um, but the people you really want to hear from uh, are our esteemed panellists, and I've, I've got some notes for their introductions because they all have a lot of achievements and I don't want to forget any of them. Um, so everyone's going to present their work this morning, but we're going to have a bit more of a dynamic discussion. Um, there'll be hopefully a few questions between the panel members, um, and at the end, um, hopefully a few questions from yourselves as well. Um, so from left to right, um, Shirley Surya is a historian and a curator interested in architecture's engagement with plural modernities and interdisciplinary knowledge networks. Uh, as curator of design and architecture at M+, she co-curated Building M Plus, the museum and architecture collection, at neonsigns.hk in search of Southeast Asia through the M Plus collections and M Plus's opening exhibitions, Hong Kong Here and Beyond and Things, Spaces, Interactions, which we're very excited to see starting from next week. Um, so welcome, Shirley. 
Um, Massimiliano Depero, how's my pronunciation? Probably terrible. Uh, defines himself as a friendly neighbourhood urban designer. He's an observer of cities and people. He designs interventions based on people and their interactions with space. And recently he founded Persone, his urban design studio that aims to apply the human scale as a common denominator across different project sizes and typologies. Um, before that, Massey has also been lead designer for the master planning team at Lead 8 Hong Kong, uh, where he developed and managed several master plan and urban design projects for mixed use, commercial and residential projects across the region. Um, and he's been working in the region for 11 years, so he brings a, a quite a, a strong understanding of the way that we use public space in Asia. Uh, Marissa Yu is the co-founder and executive director of the Design Trust Initiative, which supports creative and research content related to Hong Kong and the Greater Bay Area. And she's been instrumental in shaping the growth of Design Trust since 2014, including through her work on the Design Trust Futures Studio program, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Uh, Marissa is also an architect and a founding partner of ESCU, which is an award-winning multidisciplinary architecture and research design studio that integrates culture, community, art and technology and is based here in Hong Kong. Uh, she and her partner Eric Schuldenfree have won multiple international awards for their work. Uh, Marissa is also an in-demand writer, speaker and teacher of architecture, amongst many other things. Um, and last but most definitely not least is Michael Leung, who co-founded Studio, Studio AA in the Netherlands after he completed the IM Master's course at Design Academy Eindhoven, uh, and he's now returned to Hong Kong. His works explore different aspects of design from crafts and industry to design systems and sustainability, uh, from 2D to objects and to spatial design as well. Uh, Michael's also an award-winning designer. His works have been shown during Milan Design Week and Dutch Design Week and at many other international exhibitions and museums. And he also designs and curates exhibitions as well as lecturing and teaching. So welcome to all of you. Uh, now, Shirley, I'd like to, um, to start with you, and I, I think that'll provide some really interesting context around Hong Kong. Um, so you wrote a fascinating piece in the Hong Kong issue about the city as a hub and a mediator of ideas, and um, for anyone who hasn't read that piece, I, I strongly recommend that you do it. A, it's a very interesting dive into Hong Kong as a place that, that mediates and originates uh, design and design thinking. Um, so as we look through a few examples of some of the work that you, you spoke about in your essay, Shirley, on the screen. Um, can you talk us through them and can you tell us what has driven Hong Kong to be such a unique place as a mediator and a hub in the architecture and design context? So I just uh, have to kind of preface this by saying that my perspective of seeing that it came from very historical examples, um, very much on the works that we have been researching and trying to collect uh, for the M plus collections. And so, of course, there are like be tons like, of examples from the last from contemporary, but from, and from the last 10 years. But my examples here are pretty much from the 70s uh, to the 90s. Um, so that's the examples are more historical. And I think um, I'm not saying that we are being nostalgic or going back to the past, but I was trying, I think all of us in our team are always trying to find out what were the conditions that made all these kind of po projects possible. And this is stretching from beyond uh, architecture to basically graphic design as well as, um, you know, so largely architecture and graphic design and also how it's not just about Hong Kong and China, but Hong Kong and Asia and the rest of Asia. And so I think I wanted to just uh, bring up the idea of the hub. It's not a special thing. Singapore could be a hub. Tokyo could be a hub. Uh, the idea of mediator, though, somehow, uh, I think it's much more powerful and uh, 
relevant uh, to Hong Kong because at that point, I think this is again a historical kind of a view when China was not yet open. And the only kind of, a, you can call it gateway, you can call it the receptor, you can call it the translator. Hong Kong was the translator and at that point, right? And so I brought up examples of Asia Magazine being the earliest examples by Henry Steiner. This is 1961 and it's actually founded by Adrian Zecker, like Adrian Zecker, our hotelier for Armand Hotels, was the founding publisher for this magazine called Asia Magazine. And uh, Steiner was the first art director. And so my question is like, why is this magazine founded in New York, hubbed or headquartered in Hong Kong? The, all the magazines are printed in Topan Printing in Tokyo, right? And then all these magazines are the insert of every major English daily around Asia. So basically from Straits Times to in Burma and all these, you know, they were all there. So I thought this is really powerful, like uh, Hong Kong being kind of like the, the publisher or the base of the publishing company that really mediates the idea of what Asia is. Uh, and of course, Adrian Zecker's uh, actually um, goal at that point was to actually be able to bring in the heterogeneity of Asia, but at the same time, finding a common ground. This is also a very political project because for them at that point, Asia has to speak as opposed to just Europe and America. So I see Hong Kong being part of that larger project. Uh, and so that was just a very early days in the 60s. And then later on, I think um, in the 80s, when supposedly the, the boom, economic boom period, architecture wasn't just something that you were able to design, but architecture was part of an economic production where investors come here or developers come here, but they're also connected to developers that are in Bali, in Singapore. And so someone like an architect like Paul Rudolph, right, will be invited to this part of the world, able to finally build his dream for the urban kind of like, uh, uh, I guess you can say, like a, I guess it's, it's kind of like a, a, the, the mega structure for a metropolis, uh, which is not something that he could actually um, uh, conceive or, or, or implement in the States, but he could do it here. So everything from Jakarta, Wisma Dharmala Sakti, or in Singapore, in the concourse, or even here, the Bond Center, they were all in that period of like early 80s. Uh, and so this is all that is so Hong Kong was part of that network. Uh, it was um, developers exchange ideas. They, they share their preferences for what could be built, what could be possible, and then they share across the region. And of course, I have to mention Palmer and Turner, uh, again, PNT group uh, today. What they are today may not be the same as what they were then, but we cannot forget what they did. So they were the first of many things. So whether it's the first of like building this bridge system with their major buildings in central, but also what was happening in Singapore, in Bali, but also in China. So I brought up examples as early as the Jinling Hotel um, that is in Nanjing. This is the tallest hotel in China at that point and the only first international collaboration. And so, if we, so we saw the drawings uh, for, for PAT, for Jinling Hotel, and like down to the toilet design, everything. Everything, this sets the standard for hotel design in, in China. And of course, the, if you've been to Bali Hyatt, as early as early 70s, not even when POMO was being discussed, you know, they were already considering what it means to design something based on a regionalist uh, sort of so, uh, characteristics. And of course, Jim Kinoshita is not like, uh, he has a background in hotel design and had, had, had exposed to projects in Hawaii and all that as well. So the tropics could be something that he could kind of like relate to perhaps, but there were just many factors. Uh, and then Carrie Hill was in the project team for PNT. And so I just felt like PNT, Hong Kong based pro project in Bali, people like Carrie Hill, that project actually led him to be based in Singapore and create his own firm and create the entire line of tropical so-called resort, right? So, so I just felt like, wow, this is amazing how ho Hong Kong could be this uh, kind of this center of all these amazing people making influences or impact across the region. 
Um, and so that's the kind of, uh, I think, what I meant by a mediator of ideas. Uh, of course, not so much a Hong Kong entity in an exclusive way. These are all people that are not from Hong Kong, but working in Hong Kong, using the network uh, from Hong Kong to be able to do amazing things around the region. Uh, and of course, at that point, I brought up Alan Chan's uh, work, but also uh, Henry Steiner, because the idea of like the Chinese culture or what China is, it was not something very obvious or concrete. And so I brought up a poster that was in Cebu, Tokyo. This is 80, uh, early 80s as well. That's a dragon one. So if you notice this, again, this is like pre-Photoshop days. Yeah, you can't really kind of digital uh, design anything. It's all kind of like hand. So you, you have to do your brushwork. And then it kind of moved on to this like colorful confetti of pixels to show the dragon. Of course, dragon is a very clear uh, so-called icon for what Chinese culture is, but it's also this transformation. It's not something, it's not an iconography of a pixelated dragon you know, in the early 80s. It was something, it was quite uh, progressive. And so I considered Hong Kong to be a site of this uh, inter interpreting Chinese identity or culture or identities uh, in a very progressive way. Right? It's maybe very different from what Taiwan does, uh, very different, of course, what China in the 80s or the 90s does, but Hong Kong was kind of like the progenitor of that kind of like construction of what it could be. Uh, being international, highly international, but also still looking into what could this rootedness actually mean. Uh, and so it's all these manifestations really that I, I felt like, um, I think I, I was asking myself, how, these, how could these continue today, right? And you're like, and of course we are facing very different challenges from the 80s and 90s. You don't have the luxury of an amazing economic hub, you know, and all the magazines are not as thriving as before. Uh, the idea of the media hub, you know, Singapore is a competitor and so on and so forth. But I think I was thinking, you know, how could we maintain this porousness that allow these very different people to come together to really, you know, collaborate and like really kind of um, collaborate and just be open to experimenting. I'm not sure what is the ecology that would allow for that. Uh, but I think at that point of time, uh, there was this possibility. Um, and so I think my, my essay was kind of like both questioning but also affirming <laughs> because it's like, you know, can we still maintain this? You know, or are there things that endangers uh, these conditions? If it is, can we be more aware and how can we, you know, kind of perhaps avoid that? Going back to ecology, what, what really was the ecology that led to that happening in the first place? Like, are, are you saying this is a bit of historical happenstance or were there particular policies that helped it along or, you know, other... Yeah, I think one, I mean, one policy, I mean, if you, I think in my essay, I, I mentioned that Hong Kong used to be considered as part of Southeast Asia. This is like, when NC, uh, Hong Kong as part of Southeast Asia. Unbelievable, you know, this is like pre, this is pre-81, you know, like when China, or even pre-97, right? So that's how it was framed. So it is, of course, a political and economic framework, yeah, because you can no longer, like, uh, you know, freely and, and openly trade with China at that point, and so the region becomes your base. You have to relate to, to a larger thing, whether it's South Asia or Southeast Asia, and not just China. But I think now, of course, there's a repositioning where that is, we are becoming part of that entity, and then there is a closing up, perhaps, with the other region. It becomes much more part of East Asia and South or Southeast Asia. And so, to me, it has to do with that difference. And uh, I think uh, the economic network, I use it again, you know, we have everything from like the owner of Shangri-La, right, is a Malaysian, and he hubbed himself, if you read his biography, why did he hub himself in Hong Kong was because it was a trade-free zone, much more than Singapore. And so it's like this whole trading kind of like entrepot that allows Hong Kong to bring in all these money, but also, I guess, investment for new ideas. Um, so, so I think, what, what structurally is possible today that is like then, I'm not, I don't know, perhaps, uh, I, think, I think to me, I, I sense a difference. The government is not so much opening up to a wider region, but more towards our immediate neighbor. 
Uh, and so I, so I think my, my, my question is even as M plus, you know, we, we, are, we care about what's happening uh, around our neighbors, but at the same time, we also want to keep a lookout of what, how should M plus actually represent works in a wider Asia? Because I, we believe that Hong Kong is part of that wider region and not just immediate neighbors. So that's, that's kind of our position in that sense. Sure, and, and yeah. uh, I want to come back to that. But uh, in the meantime, just to, to go back to some of the specifics of that design and the design history, do you feel like Hong Kong made those influences its own in a lot of, and if so, how? I think uh, one thing, for, so the funny thing about, there's one project which you don't actually feel as something worthy, which is this, uh, uh, it's actually the office of, um, of uh, Singapore Land Tower. Okay, it's got changed its name now. That's uh, so one of the images later to come. Um, so Singapore Land Tower is an example of a commercial skyscraper that for the first time in Singapore itself is built with an amazing kind of like cantilevered kind of a, a plaza where you don't actually enter by an entrance, but you enter like the kind of completely um, this transparent view. You can see the double story of the lobby. Um, so it's, it's almost like a, a, a mark in which the office tower needs to relate to that larger public space. So this is something, I think, I, I guess from my reading of like how commercial offices have been designed in, in, in Hong Kong in the 70s was much more aware of that. And they brought, they brought in that as a typology for Singapore when Palmer and Turner designed this Singapore Land Tower. So is something as small as that about like what does it mean to build something, uh, a commercial tower uh, within an urban setting, uh, but at the same time creating this sense of public space within, within that uh, reception, right? So that's one. And then the other one that is very unique is the interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary nature of, of design. And so whether you're a photographer, an art director, a stylist, a costume designer, um, or a just graphic uh, designer itself. The moment of Alp, the Canto Pop moment for me was an example because I think I had to interview all the designers in the in the 80s who designed these covers. Again, pre Photoshop, all these covers here. They are like they are like the ones involved in City Magazine. They are ones involved in all the movie art direction. So they are like really crossing over fields and mediums. Uh, they're not just being professionally. I am a graphic designer and that's what I do. But I am also um, a photographer. I'm also a a painter. You know, so it's that sort of a mix that allows. Uh, these fields to kind of like um, kind of interrelate and also come up with something that could be experimental. Um, so to me, I'm not saying that other regions are not interdisciplinarian, but I'm just saying that that moment itself is very unique and uh, in which there was a less professional borders, but people are able to kind of cross very openly, unashamedly, uh, even if it seems to be amateurish, like I'm not really trained as a photographer, but I'm going to try it. That's the, there was that spirit. Yeah. So at that moment, it was that's what I felt to be a very Hong Kong one because it's got to do with the entertainment industry, the music industry, the film industry. Uh, so design was very much part of that. Uh, so in Singapore, was there such a thing? In Indonesia, was there such a thing? Not necessarily as a, as a similarly accelerated way. So that's why I thought it was really that acceleration um, or the intermixing of people. And the, of course, the capital, I mean, capitally speaking, there was a lot of investment uh, in these things that allow, it for, allow for it to be possible. Yeah, and yeah. you mentioned the um, the bridges between a lot of the buildings in Central, which I, I think was actually a world first, and you might correct me or someone else might correct me on that. But uh, yeah, Hong Kong did pioneer that that type of thing. And I, for me, I think there's still a, a bit of a DIY spirit in the city as well, and you can see that in the way that people adapt public space um, on the fly, which I, I think we'll, we'll get to um, with some of the other speakers as well. Um, just a final question from me, Shirley. Do you think... Ho what Hong Kong has done can be a, a constructive model for other cities? I think it's, um, it is, I mean, I, I really kind of, um, how do you say this? I think, again, I think it has been, 
it has been and I just it's funny because like I was reading uh, Tahoe's archive and then I saw Tahoe is like an architect who passed away and there's a letter that came from Lee Kuan Yew for which is the Prime Minister of Singapore and then he actually said thank you for sending me all these articles and all these books I hope that your ideas please keep your association with Singapore because I believe that your ideas uh, will be ve very important for us right so I'm just like I'm just like oh so moved you know like uh, like the, the Prime Minister actually saying that you know an architect in Hong Kong you know has ability to affect discourse that is not just in Hong Kong but also across and I think that is a model I would say was already was possible and has been possible in the past uh, there were a lot of interactions uh, between Hong Kong mainland China Southeast Asia and all that but what it is today I think um, it is harder with the borders like this you know it's even harder <laughs> but I think I, I just wanted to say like you know I remember when Marissa went uh, when you made a trip to Singapore um, and keeping that connection uh, with what's going on there um, and also supporting projects that are not in Hong Kong only that's to me is, is an example where you are actually able to to yeah model the idea that we need good ideas from everywhere and we also want to support the implementation of good ideas elsewhere as much as it's in Hong Kong uh, and we want to seed that Right. And so, of course, M Plus itself is also, we hope to be uh, an accelerator of that because so far, for example, our project of archiving older works that have not been documented before have led to the similar initiatives other, in other places. Uh, and so the model of like, what does it mean to collect design research and conserve design is also being a question right now in other cities because museums in Asia generally only care largely for visual art. Uh, and so we want to be able to be that model, right? So, so I'm just saying there are many different examples. I'm just saying like the two ones that are closest to my heart is what, uh, we, what M Plus has hoped to do or aspire to do for the region, uh, but also practices that are here that are influencing, uh, that are you know, making a difference in other cities as well. And I think that's possible, so. Thanks. Uh, Marissa, did you have any comment on that? Or did any panelists have any questions for, uh, yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really do believe in this, the sense of uh, Hong Kong's ability to um, connect and engage in the global dialogue. I think we've always had that very specific um, uh, integral connection to, and I wouldn't even say east or west, but really a sensibility and um, and noting how to survive in um, the design discourse and whether it's out of urgency of building social housing um, to really impacting um, that cultural dialogue between Asia it's it's really fascinating I mean I was just w when you mentioned the urgency also I would imagine the, um, the the program we had with one of the recent fellows who was researching the last 30 years of how Hong Kong City is represented in video games, and no one's actually done that kind of knowledge building. Um, so when you look at 1984, the first video game with the Sampan hat, to the recent um, video game specialist designing uh, architectural urban cities um, with Shenzhen Metro and Hong Kong Metro and MTR as a game, it also influences and demonstrates this richness of Hong Kong's culture and urbanism and the reality and, and non-realities. Yeah, so I find that really fascinating. Sorry, I was just going to say, it's a city that, that lives in the imagination um, a lot, yeah. doesn't it, as much as I think I just, I just wanted to bring it a little bit to the ground because, of course, the idea of micro-housing and what uh, someone like Gary, I'm, I'm sure there are many more other people than what Gary does, you know, like this is the model of that, of that house. You know, this, I mean, he became, this is, not, this is not just a Hong Kong phenomenon. It's a worldwide phenomenon uh, that you're dealing with. Um, so. The idea of uh, designing within this urban dense kind of like, kind of like, 
land stretched uh, place or scarce place. You know, it's a, it's a strategy that we can implement anywhere else. You know, so I think I think it is yeah definitely like I guess relevant. So many more things, and I, I cannot help but Hadith's one, Zaha Hadith's the peak project in the 80s. I mean, this was the project that actually enabled her to really kind of propel her her reputation and the possibility of designing and constructing space and the building in a completely different way. And it just requires a client in Hong Kong to kind of come be open to a crazy brief, right? So is that sort of a visionary kind of openness? And then from there, it just kind of travels, the ideas just travel across, <laughs> so. Okay. Thank you very much, Shirley. Uh, um, just to pick up on that point of dealing with the challenges of public space, that, that would be a good point to bring in Massey, I think. There are other architectural and, um, and urban elements that have been pioneered in Hong Kong. We talked about the elevated walkways in Central in the 60s. But despite that, the, so one of the first things that I think people notice when they come to Hong Kong is that it's not a very walkable city and that it, it does struggle a lot with public space. Um, we're, we're going to talk about a specific project from you in a minute, um, but just a, a broader question first. Coming, coming to Hong Kong as an urban planner, how do you see it? <laughs> Let's try to make it short. Well, I, I start connecting to what you guys just said. I think Hong Kong to me, uh, I spent here only 12 years of my life, not that long yet, so, but I'm learning a little about Hong Kong. Mm, Hong Kong is it's a very dense city. We have crazy numbers, we have so many people. That will give us the chance to create many things because that's what now everyone is like targeting, having a dense city, how to create the city of the future more sustainable. But according to that, I would like to see diversity in many type of like destination function, which in those 12 years, I didn't really see happening. I see a city which is many times going to end up in a typical metric of certain destination and functions, which mm, unfortunately doesn't cover a certain value that as an urban planner, urban designer, we should think to integrate, include, inject in our city. Said that is like, to me, Hong Kong is a laboratory. I learned so much. Telling my story, I'm coming from like a, a very small area in Italy, then I moved to Genoa, then I, I, I work and study in Milan. I experienced a bit of like other continent, and then I came here. So for me, it was a crazy exposure, complete different scale completely different way of working. Uh, going specific, how I see Hong Kong. Well, in terms of like quality of life, when I, I, I work uh, and I define the quality of how we live, I just don't look at the commercial function. So uh, how I define quality of life is what people does in public space. And if I, I refer al always to uh, studies that are not mine, and they are proven, like Yangel, and how they define and how I try to define the space. When look what we do daily, all of us, eh, all of us, whatever is our job, uh, going to work, going to school, going to buy grocery, that happens anyway, no matter if your city is good or not. If the quality of the city is low, you still need to do that. But what we define as quality is what we are willing to do apart there in our like, free time, going for a walk, going for a stroll, going to play with your kids, 
going whatever you are pleased to do in a space, that defines uh, the quality of the space and the quality of the city. I leave it to you understanding how you spend your free time in Hong Kong. Uh, yes, there is public space. Yeah, many times, oh, but there is no public space. Yeah, there is, but is it well connected? Is it really accessible? Here we have, uh, uh, Marisa is now is an expert of public space. They already deliver two parks there, and one is really into a typical community. It would be great to study further, like uh, in Chinwan. But uh, no, in Hong Kong, public space is not well connected. It's not really accessible. The quality of the space, we can discuss further. So mm. that's like how I would like to describe Hong Kong to start. I hope it's. Okay. <laughs> Um, and that, that connects well to actually to the proposal that you're presenting, that mm. you've already presented to the Hong Kong government, yeah. which is a walkability project uh, for Saiwan. Um, mm. So talk us through that. Um, what, what led you to creating that proposal and um, why is it important? Th this is the, the quality of life in a city that you're talking about. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to... Yeah, you can see something there, but I think I try to explain. Well, what it led to me to start this idea is that living near and like experiencing daily as a citizen, as a resident, as an urban designer. But all of you could have your own opinion. This is a vision, this is a vision plan. I, when I introduced to the government, this is not design yet. I mean, it's the very inception of design. Saiwan, uh, Saiwan, like they just, you know, a few years ago we received uh, we, our first, uh, you know, connection on the, MTR line, which changed many things, especially property value, which again is a problem in the city because it's out of control. Because it's not control in a way to maintain the balance in between public and private. That's one, one very difficult thing. And that leads then to understand how the space are planned. So why I, how we started? Well, in my daily life, working uh, in Kennedy Town, now I spent seven years in Canadian Town living there, and there is not much of public space. We have a very nice park, which is the uh, Belcherbe Park, and we had an amazing unconventional public space that was Instagram Pier, which all of you know Instagram Pier. That was, for years, I think, one of the best destinations in Hong Kong. From activity, from branding, from telling a story, people was telling the story, which probably is the real meaning of branding, right? So you give the perception to people. So I started because I was foreseeing that sooner or later that space, it, it will be in trouble, especially because they were keeping on telling us, look, you're trespassing, it's not legal, you shouldn't go there, but we don't have space. And the space was kind of usable, of course, yeah, it's still a working docks. Uh, part of it was like already like release. It was like Pier 1 from Pier 3, and now it's the new Belcher Bay Promenade. We can talk about it later. But I foresee the problem. And in a city, when you do city planning, urban design, uh, if you wanna preclude something from people, you should provide an alternative, which has never been done in the entire Hong Kong. So my point was like, if Instagram Pier, as an illegal space is one of the best destinations in Hong Kong, well, then we have problems. Then we have problems because it uh, means that the other spaces, they are not delivering, they are not performing as they should. 
And that was like a, a space used 24-7. It was unbelievable. This, to give you an idea, unfortunately, I cannot do an amazing presentation like them, but I give you an idea. So if you take the space from the ejecting one in the open water, but also the one more like uh, on the coastline of the docks, uh, it's roughly uh, half size of Kowloon Park in TST, in Chimsa Choi. Or it's like um, uh, a fourth of Tamar Park. So when you remove that space, which was functioning as a link, link to what? Linked to a very fragmented waterfront. So even if it's newly developed, like the Belcheri Promenade and uh, the segment of like Western and uh, uh, Central and Western District Promenade, adding to um, San Yatsen, it's very fragmented and is also very disconnected uh, from the neighbor. Uh, there is new this new segment. They are not really connected well. If if you see some of the picture. The arrival from Chekhon Soy is like just a parking space where there is loading and unloading, which is not planned to be. There is illegal parking, and there are sidewalks that are very neglected, and all of these people that for years were, were walking there, they pass in this like working area, with possibly supposed to be inside a cargo area, possibly, but somehow it's still happening actually in public space, because streets are public space, but they are poorly planned. So all of us, we were, were relying on Instagram peer, developers, the government itself, citizen, local business, because all of us, we were enjoying the space. Branding our new property, say, wow, my new property is in Kennedy Town. It's an amazing space because we have Instagram peer, because of this, because of that. And everyone was using the space. Why we were relying on that? for poor city planning. Decades of poor city planning, they didn't provide something like that. So when last February, it was very unfortunate, they shut down, or better, they uh, closed the Instagram pier to the public. And when they closed that, they closed a connection, but they closed a space. It was like providing so many chances to do so many type of activities to so many different people in Canadian Town, Shekton Soy, but also many other residents coming from every neighbor in Hong Kong. Even visitors, when before COVID we had like tourists, we have people visiting, that was almost like a, a target. Rather than going to official landmark, they were going to check Instagram pure because through hashtag, through uh, this new like form of communicating, it was becoming very popular. So that was like, how I start to think about this proposal. Okay, and, and you've already presented this to the government. So yeah. yeah, so what happened? After this sad uh, date, which was roughly around San Valentine, I guess, it was February, February, February 21, uh, it shut down, and immediately the, the patterns of life of Kenny Town, they changed it, not for just for residents, but for all of us. and. Uh, I already started to talk with people, NGOs, uh, district council, but at the moment, uh, I got, they came back to me. I said, oh, Marcy, that proposal actually was very relevant. We didn't realize till now. I said, ah, well, it's sad, but it was good for the proposal because maybe, we'll my, my point was that I self-initiated this myself for over a year, pushing, developing, counting people, 
walking around, collecting data, photo, sketching, testing like possible solution, which it was not just regarding walkability, it was regarding many, many things. Because a space like this is bringing many, many benefit at every level, even commercial. Not just for social, not for culture, not for entertainment, not for leisure, even commercially. I remember that when they newly opened the Belcher Bay Promenade, where maybe like, uh, there is room for improvement, but definitely provide space for people. We start to see like people coming like a, a big skateboard community using the space because in West uh, Hong Kong Island, there is no skateboard park. Uh, I see family coming to maybe having breakfast from some other neighbor and then going to spend maybe a few hours at the waterfront. So that also was Instagram peer. Suddenly I received also a call from like the development bureau calling me private. I was like, wow, I did something wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and they were interested to know more about that. So we had a sidewalk uh, and my idea was then to donate that vision plan to the government. And with the, f with the help of like uh, some of the Central Western District, District Council, also uh, an NGO, Paul Zimmerman, which always supported me since like, back 2015 with some other ideas. I was able and invited uh, to present uh, at the Central West DC Council with like highway department, transport department, home affairs department, and all of the district council, full support, a lot of discussion, realizing how it's difficult to work with the government department, how difficult is creating a dialogue. And my initiative was really try to start the dialogue, but Marisa will tell us more because she has more experience than me working with the government. And uh, it's, it's, it's really a challenge. And that's why I think many of the things we, we need in Hong Kong, maybe they are not functioning yet. Because possible, the dialogue is not really possible. So that, that was like, I think, a big achievement. And uh, of course, uh, there are many, many other steps. But yeah, the, the point is really like uh, try to uh, I think the main mission for me in this like proposal is like, I hope it, it can still go on. Uh, the idea was creating a sort of guidelines uh, with further study and report that will really help the, um, the city planning and how to really maintain certain spaces or improve them together with the more uh, private developments. When we develop our waterfront, uh, mm, I observe there are two main approach. One is the, this like very temporary that then probably lasts for seven years, but since like temporary, very budget intervention, like the promenade we're just seeing coming out now, the newly one open in uh, Tinao or Belcher Bay Promenade, they're all temporary. Uh, but, or very commercial development, which sometimes then they forget a bit about that public space component because they're too focused on the commercial metrics. So we don't have the balance, which instead of internationally, if you look at waterfront, they're actually being regenerated. Because we, especially poor city, we all had those mistakes in back in 100 years when we start to in industrialize. Genova, for example, where I spent half of my Italian life, well, uh, at the big, when we start to industrialize, we start to dump all of those big boxes and infrastructure on the waterfront, which they became then a huge scar that now many countries, many cities, they are like trying to 
uh, regenerate or integrate with that coastline, right? And that was like also the same for Hong Kong. You see the docks, you see the route for in Hong Kong Island, or if you look at uh, Kung Tong. Kung Tong, they actually start to regenerate a bit early. It's actually a decent, a decent example. But my, my main point is like, why we don't try to find the balance? And my, hopefully the guidelines would try to help because my idea was like to find support, develop those guidelines, which uh, they are missing a way for the city planning in Hong Kong and support the government and support who is gonna maybe then develop those spaces. Yeah. And I, I think it. I think it's a. Uh, it's a. It's a happy ending that it seems like the government is becoming more receptive to that kind of thing. And I think that's that's a point that Marissa has made too, um, recently, which I wanted to pick up on as well. So, you've done a lot, obviously, around Hong Kong, but you've spent a lot of time recently in this public parks project with Design Trust, and you you're working with the government and you're working with the um, with the local communities as well in those areas. Can you just start by talking us through the parks project a bit? Okay, so before I do share, maybe just to preface, I am a perpetual optimist um, for Hong Kong. I do agree Hong Kong is an urban laboratory of ideas and innovation. Um, and I'm also a, a huge, huge believer in the potential of um, human skill sets. Okay, so, and why, as I speak, um, I also have a sense of urgency and responsibility. I am from Hong Kong. I grew up here. <laughs> I've had very lucky opportunities to study abroad on scholarships and, um, and um, understand the value of education and um, connectivity to build global dialogue. So as you're spinning through these images, um, the, the beginning starting point actually wasn't even the first Design Trust Future Studio project. Um, I would say um, one of my epiphanies was uh, very lucky connecting back to the kind of West Kowloon M plus site. In 2009, um, had the really great opportunity to be um, selected as a curatorial team member, um, along with um, my partner, husband Eric, Alan and Frank, Chu, uh, Frank Yu uh, to produce um, the 2009 Bi-City Biennale of Architecture and Urbanism uh, between Hong Kong and Shenzhen. And through that empty West Kowloon site, realized with the curatorial proposition, how do we design for our city? Who is our public? And how come Hong Kong has all this in extraordinary resource and generosity of um, different individuals, how do we build that kind of cultural capacity um, to do and build transformational, um, whether it's knowledge building, uh, research on our, our kind of history, um, and to also look at the potential of spatial opportunities. So what I learned through that kind of 2009 and then 2010, and also being an uh, academic back in the day, is also realizing uh, there's a lot of young generations of extraordinary talent, and how do we build new types of opportunities to and kind of um, catalyze that that potential? So that's that's been my purpose and mission, uh, both as a practicing architect, uh, former academic, um, a 
nascent cur curator, but I would just say I, I really do believe in um, architecture and design and the role that can really impact um, intellectual public discourse and really put design in the map uh, to make change. So as we're doing this, a lot of you here actually have been part of this community. Um, I am not a singular voice. I really believe in collaboration and, and the collective willpower to make change. So Design Trust Future Studio, I put this together since um, kind of 2014, 15 post um, and really struggling looking at our city from you know, the lens of Occupy Central, understanding the, the kind of future of Hong Kong. Um, we always were invested already in, in Shenzhen and Pearl River Delta, but now it's Greater Bay Area. So you know, looking at the opportunities of um, international relations and designers um, and active diplomacy really made me think, okay, let's try this. <laughs> um, so the first topic was actually Design Trust Future Studio, Small is Meaningful. Um, looking at the capacity of being independent, looking at the role of um, if we are living in smaller spaces, yes, Gary Chan is a guru, um, how do we inspire his skill set as a mentor to younger um, designers? So put this kind of theme together um, as a community cultural think tank, matching extraordinarily empowering um, architects from international uh, region, Hong Kong, so we had like Stanley Wong lead um, a multidisciplinary team. We vet the designers. They're five to ten years out of school as design mentees, and they get mentored by like Gary Chang. We had an international workshop with Liz Diller. I fundraised to bring 18 designers to New York um, to walk the high line, meet their dream graphic pentagram designer. Um, and through kind of this really interesting, rigorous, but a highly experimental uh, process, it started to challenge and provoke and probe how, the, how our city is designed. So what's been really special is, um, you know, it's really about expertise building. We all are learning in a specific period. Um, but how do we upskill, de-skill? How do we challenge expertise? How do we bring the best graphic designer, young architect, um, expert on elderly design to playground equipment and mash this energy together, uh, curate the conversation, challenge the government, work with the grassroots community, um, and basically conceptualize um, playgrounds and public spaces that could be unique for neighborhoods. And so this is where we are. It's been uh, both challenging and enthralling and also um, a learning laboratory, basically, of um, testing and design iteration. And, and what's been you know, a, a beautiful process, it's so multi-layered from how the young designers now realize you know, urban education or architecture education um, has to be very multidisciplinary, and that's always been the mission. How do we work in a nonprofit um, NGO space that is very neutral? We have no KPIs. We don't need to, um, you know, add, basically we add value to our own journey. 
And along the way, we changed mindset with it's extraordinary to have government architects working with us till 10 p.m., uh, designers volunteering, um, but also insistently presenting to um, the government process where it's like the head of fire department um, to you know, learning how can purple grass actually make me feel com more comfortable and natural and organic? How do we create modular furniture for the first time ever in Hong Kong that is portable? Um, so you can actually shape your own uh, social space. How do we create um, and involve young communities from these really tough, challenging sites? This is a Chunwan 930 square meter courtyard space and working with very difficult um, areas which are not on the waterfront or the harbour front, uh, maybe m a little bit more underprivileged, and getting um, the community involved. So, yeah, that's sort of a snapshot. Yeah, I can go on for yeah, a No, thank bit. you. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. There, there's a, p a point that I really do want to pick up, as encouraging as it is to me and hope hopefully to everyone else here, that um, you are developing a great relationship with the government and... Uh, and different departments and, and getting them involved in this and excited about this. I wanted to ask about um, your experience with, uh, with the community and with uh, engaging local communities in designing these parks. Because as we, I think we've alluded to a few times, Hong Kong people do improvise a lot when it comes to public space. They just use it as needed. And I think that that's come up throughout your design pr trust projects as well. I was interested in, um, in how it's gone here. Uh, what's the process and have people responded really strongly and do they have a lot of input into what goes into these parks and playgrounds? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Yipei Square one in Chunwan is a good case study of um, public process. Um, so the way I've set up the Future Studio program, it's heavily research-based but is also community-based. We build dialogue. And what's been uh, quite extraordinary, I mean, we've been through... An intense period of you know social and social activities 2019. Um, also, the the pandemic has really uh, slowed the process of public craft space making. So that's why now it's coming off um, to reality. But you can see a lot of these projects. Um, you have John Mack, graphic designer, uh, young architect Stephen Yip, um, industrial kind of designer Kay Chan, who's all about dealing and handling with the community. So we, we basically do a lot of like sketching on the ground, work with local NGOs like Caritas. Uh, you bring in the district council uh, members uh, involved from start to finish. And of course, it's been challenging because the architecture service department, the policy innovation coordination office and the leisure culture service department, we all came together to treat this as a pilot. So there was already an openness to the, the generosity of sharing, um, but it's been also uh, really our role to stitch that conversation and um, be persistent. So for example, this kind of EPDM material, um, we mix certain materials together to give it um, a bit of a, a more kind of sculptural element. The merry-go-rounds um, you know, were also created after all a series of surveys on the ground. And we also worked with this extraordinary NGO called Playwright, um, who deals with inclusive play. So how do we bring in inclusivity and intergenerational parks? Um, and it's, it's quite amazing. Like throughout the process, there's been obviously 
concern groups, uh, very angry about this is our background, how, how and what are you doing it from a design perspective, but because we're using tools of communication, we build a lot of prototypes, we do a lot of testing, we bring that to exhibition making, to um, probe and basically advocate for the kind of future reality and basically build that kind of energy together. Um, the good news is yes, um, because of a lot of the, the pilot programming, um, the policy addressed last year had announced um, because of our four micropilot project processes and also the two moon one and they're planning 170 um, play spaces to be revitalized with the sort of community aspiration and spirit for the next five years. So there is a appetite of you know these really amazing projects, M plus or um, Persona Studio work, um, but it has taken a, a lot of uh, conversation meetings. <laughs> I was just telling you earlier, I think one park is like 104 meetings, so you scale up to four, is that 400 meetings? So I treat this also as a uh, social documentary and uh, the reason why we've been you know, able to bring this about is taking a very documentary, um, neutral, observational methodology and um, shaping and sharing and time lapse, you know, the role of media. And what's really shocking with this one, um, everyone's asking why pink and you know, you, you one one side of the story could be, uh, oh, it's um, it's it's shocking. Uh, we've done a lot of studies on it's an instant way to calm people psychologically. Um, you paint prison cells, uh, crimin criminal activity drops, uh, but a lot of people from the public looked at the pink and say, "Woo, this is in Portland Street. It's a red light district." Um, the teens were thinking, oh, maybe this, this talks about, you know, the reduction of you know, hormonal activity and bringing more femininity. And then now it's become like Squid Game Netflix. Um, <laughs> and it's across the street from the Jockey Club betting station. So Sundays, it's amazing. You have radios on. You have uh, all these m elderly, amazing men and women betting, um, horse racing. And you know, it's just become this really a place for all. And children are playing chess in new ways. And um, at our recent soft opening, um, this this series of old ladies came to Dakat, which is um, Instagram. So not that we designed it for this, but it's now achieving something that's just questioning who our demographic and and how can we design public spaces for the enjoyment of everyone. It's, I think it's fantastic that um, that it surprises you, um, even even after you've spent so so long on it. Um, so thank you. I think that that's a great point to bring in Michael um, as well. Um, Michael, you you've been involved a lot in um, in public in social design projects and public design projects as well. Um, and uh, actually, I, I want to quote from your. Um, your quote in Design Anthology recently, that design is still relatively new and developing in Hong Kong and that we have to communicate what it can do. Um, can you talk a bit more about that, um, especially in the context of the weaving project that you did with Design District and, and some of your other community work? And we'll, we'll take a look at that on screen now as well. Well, um, for, yeah, the weaving project is part of uh, Shamshui Po people, uh, a, a public uh, 
placemaking project in Shamshepo. Um, I was supposed to be only curating, and then for Maple Street Park, where the weaving project is, um, we commissioned a fashion designer to do a piece there based on the population and demographics of Shamshepo. But then within like with around six weeks left, she decided to drop out. So we couldn't find like a replacement designer, so I had to do it. Um, so yeah. Um, but then we also had to um, like discuss a lot with the government, with the park manager, because um, he keeps banning like uh, the, the proposals we, we submitted. And then, Finally, we realized that there's, there's this guy who likes to set fire on anything that blocks his view in the park. So we had to, initially we wanted to engage like the Shamshepo community to do the piece together. So we were designing like weaving machines so they could weave on site. Um, and then in the end, we collaborated with the uh, Hong Kong Suge Creative College. Uh, creative school, um, so they would uh, the students would weave weave together um, on the piece, and then we have to hang it high enough so that the guy couldn't set fire on it. <laughs> so yeah, basically that's the story of the of the weaving project. But then it's actually um, if you uh, see the graphics, it's t um, telling the 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 community like. Um, the the gender ratio of Shamshepo, um, the ethnicity ethnicity of Shamshepo and the age groups. Um, it's like a simple uh, information graphics that they could read from the piece. And it's the same with all the other works that we commission other designers and artists. Um, this one is by Christopher Hall. Um, he did this huge murals in Shamshepo in a public uh, bathhouse, toilet, and the um, garbage place and then why the shop cats is because basically you see more cats than um, business owners when you walk through the streets of Shamshepo. that's why the, the shop cats and then we also we also commissioned a director to make a music video with the sh shop cats in Shamshepo. and then um, these are some of the upcycling furnitures by um, like teenagers from YWCA and some designers like Michael Young. Um, and then they made like 10 pieces of it and then we put them into different shops in Shamshepo so like visitors could just like wander around and explore Shamshepo themselves. Because this is um, actually a tourism project and it's not really a design project. Although it's made during COVID times. Um, so we try not to like do something for Shamshepo, but do something with Shamshepo. So a lot of um, shop owners, uh, elderly, students, um, homeless people um, created this whole, uh, all the installations, all the, all the works. And there were different workshops that they could join. These are um, the, the sculptures you saw are actually like people, people from Shamshepo, like Bruce Lee, um, he went to Learn Wang Chun in Shamshepo. There are uh, uh, um, James Wong, Wong Jim from uh, uh, a, a lyricist and a entertainer and a, a, a movie uh, celebrity from Hong Kong. He also uh, grew up in Shamshepo. Just there are actually a lot of 
people who influenced Hong Kong that are from Sham Shui Po, and um, Rex Ku did the sculptures of them. And uh, this, some students also helped like to create the, the work together with him. Same with, um, yeah, you can see sign paintings here um, led by Carter with the students. Are you consciously trying to demonstrate to people what design can do and what design means? And are you trying to give them, uh, trying to amplify their sense of place and their sense of pride in their place at the same time? For this project, yes, because it's, it's a bit complicated to like do something design-ish for Shamshai Po because it's a very, very local community. And then their understanding to design might be a bit different. Like, because uh, we want to talk to a lot of the neighbors and then um, we try to see how they use all the public space and we adapt the way they, they use it instead of like trying to create something new and put it there. Um, like, there's a small house kind of thing with a lot of sign painting on it. That's by Kato. Um, it's actually a very narrow and long park. It's like, there's like a, a whole street with this tiny narrow park going th in the middle of it. And it's quite unique in Hong Kong and elsewhere, I think. Um, so we went there to like see how people use it. So one block um, used by more the homeless people or the dr drug addicts. Others are used by like um, like uh, 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 Vietnamese people, or one part is used more by elderly or, or, or kids. And then in daytime, they would just sit there and chill, or they would have their lunchbox there. At nighttime, they would play badminton or picnic there. So we try to adapt this um, way of using the public space to the pieces that is created by the um, designers. And then when we walked into the park, there's actually a lot of signages saying like, you cannot do this, you cannot do that. So that's why we actually use all the signages to create that little house thing. So that, but in a, in a more encouraging way and in different languages that represents like the ethnicity of Sham Shui Po. There are also QR codes that you could scan and then you can see different um, music videos sung by like uh, Thai uh, people or Vietnamese people of the songs that they like. Um, yeah. <laughs> so sounds fascinating. Yeah, that's and, and it sounds like there's been a strong community response. Yeah, th it definitely is. Uh, they they they're actually quite happy about the the results of the all the other projects that happened in the during the two weeks actually only. Um, we went there and we saw like people really using the house for picnic. They would actually take off their shoes and go inside and, and just like, yeah, uh, 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 chill there. And then kids were like running around the houses. Like they, I was there like taking photos of the things. And then they would come and ask like, what does this mean? And, and, and like during, while we were setting up, um, I, I heard someone yell, hey, like, uh, across the street. I wasn't, like, thinking that they were haying me. But then I looked, and then they, they were actually trying to ask, like, when would this be open to the public? 
So they, they're very looking forward to like things happening. And, and too bad that this is the third year of the project, which is the last year. So I'm not sure if this would continue and, and have another placemaking thing. In well, I'm sure we all hope it does. Um, and I, I think a, a common thread from, um, from what you've told us and what Marissa's told us today, and hopefully uh, Massey, Massey's presentation as well, is that people, people understand public space and they know what they want out of public space and they just maybe need a little bit of um, guidance here and there and a bit of help at a policy level. Um, as well, which which hopefully um, hopefully is happening, and uh, I think we're seeing some of the green shoots of that now. Um, so I'd like to thank you all for your time, um, and we do have time for a couple of quick questions as well from the audience. If yeah, the qu the question is what we can do, if anything, uh, as a design community to help the the issue with domestic helpers not having spaces to go on Sundays. I'm, first of all, I don't actually, but yeah, you can you can correct me. I don't actually think it's an issue. Number one. Meaning, I'm just saying like, I am actually witnessing more that they are enjoying the freedom, even if it means making, make, uh, making a makeshift cardboard thing for themselves, even if it seems like a very tattered way of like dwelling, a, uh, inhabiting a space, but if they actually find that this is just how I want to make do with it. I see them enjoying themselves, having karaoke, you know, selling and sharing food, selling whatever, you know, in that space. Even if it seems to be a very lowly kind of like unbuilt. So I'm just saying like there are moments when design does not need to intervene. I'm just like raising it. I think I'm just, uh, again, I'm sure all of us have very different views, but I don't actually think that design needs to intervene sometimes when you actually see collective intelligence using whatever means they have to create their own space or do their own thing. I, I think yeah. Mike, I, I think yeah. Michael has a, a point as well. Thanks, Shirley. I, I kind of agree with Shirley. Like, I, I'm okay with it, but then I also see like the domestic helpers going to different parks that like design what design trust did or I also did one in Chengyi they really used those tiny public spaces that we designed and so eventually they would go and explore different areas and then not gather so much in one place so that in a way is also solving if that that's a, a problem that that you call it of of central area this yeah um, I have a different opinion <laughs> um, well, it's a very complicated issue. Uh, it's not just about how we design public space. There's much more. But as a designer and as an urban designer, so I look also at something that comes much earlier. It's nice because in here you see many scales that they go across the same problem or the same space, right? So from the macro till designing the micro and the in between maybe with the scale F. So going back to the question, uh, it's an issue. Uh, the space, they are not, the public space we have, they are not suitable for many and they are not suitable for certain categories, which they are re very relevant in the, in the patterns of life of Hong Kong, which are the domestic help. I, I can even tell you more from a previous research that I've done in 2015. I actually received very difficult comments on when I want to develop further the spaces for everyone. And when I do my observational space, a day that I have to, or actually two days, because I have to double check, is always Saturday and Sunday because it's the only uh, free day that they have to enjoy some freedom 
because they work all day. They then according to who, which group they have, or the Saturday or the Sunday free. And there is not enough space. There is not the right space. There are not the right condition. And uh, I, I understand that the do-it-yourself is a good uh, self-arrangement of public space, but when that happens, in my, in my opinion, is because public space is not suitable. All of us, we're doing a lot of self-arranging in Hong Kong because this public space is not suitable, including the domestic helper. The public space is not suitable for a category of user, which they lack of private space, uh, and we know why. We all lack of pri private space, even we are privileged, I'm assuming, when we have a certain situation, the private space is even worse, right? So the, the chance to uh, um, having the moment where you can have more space is the public space, where many people like to live uh, and, and enjoy. And the space is not suitable. Mm. So it's not just about how we're going to design, but where we're going to provide it. Uh, and where it's connected to those communities, where they can go and spend their free time. They can take some of our pink, pink yeah. stools. <laughs> you know, I always like when I look at these, uh, the, these spaces, I look at everyone. Because for me, it, everyone should use it. And, uh, I rem and now I need to go back to this comment. Years ago, I had this presentation with one big, uh, big uh, organization here in Hong Kong. And when I want to improve spaces, which they're mostly related to uh, a residential area, uh, I have been uh, received objections say, yeah, but if we improve it, then uh, on Sunday it's going to be invaded by the helpers. I had to hold myself, and, uh, and my, my response was, uh, well, let's assume that I share the same opinion as you based on like, whatever are your standards. But it's still kind of a stupid point because I'm sorry, but I have to, I, I now I cannot be too diplomatic. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a stupid point because for one day where someone is in the space, the way I may not like, which we, we disagree, hopefully, I miss other six days where myself, my family, my kids, my mom, and whoever I care, they're not gonna use it because that spa space is not existing. Only for one day that someone is not maybe using it, but that is completely the opposite of what public space means. It should be for everyone. It should be designed for everyone. And going back to your point, I agree. We need dignified those spaces for everyone. And in Hong Kong, it's not. There's missing chairs or spaces for everyone. Even more for who has less fortunate situation, which there are also many Hong Kongese actually. They live in subdivided flat, and the those spaces, they are essential for them. But no one is thinking of the problem. Hopefully, someone is starting. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I mean, I totally agree. I think with Kathy, I mean, we, we were actually looking at very urgent topics. Um, um, and w one of the issues, yes, is dignified dignity and spaces for all. But it's also the notion of how design um, guidelines and also whether it's top down or bottom up what you realize is we're really predicated on these 60s, 70s laws of engagement. And just say the Yipei Square Playground, it originally only was surrounded um, for 300 units. Now it's 2,000 uh, apartments of subdivided flats, right? So the intensity of what you 
have um, in the current state of kind of complexity of Hong Kong real estate or codes or regulations is it's just really beyond that. So it's not just saying it's not the design um, disciplines issue or the collective willpower. It's really prefacing these as topics to have people around and tackle them. And although the playgrounds are innocent, it seems like, yes, just for play, but it's um, unv unveiling the difficulty of this notion of publicness because of these um, uh, you know, new immigrants. Uh, suddenly all these NGOs are popping up uh, about single women um, who uh, can't uh, afford to have uh, help. And they're actually living in these units, but we have a playground to kind of let other communities come around to also um, be custodians of, of, of this um, neighborhood, right? So you start to see, like, how do we design um, with contemporary urgency, but also build these kind of future studio community think tanks to, to sit together and be like, okay, well, these are probing questions. Can we open up these empty, there's, I think, two, don't, don't get me wrong, this to say, I think there's about 240 uh, derelict school, um, old schools, right? There's a lot of, um, there's a 1,500 LCSD managed public parks. There's a lot of extraordinary resources in Hong Kong as really masterminding and coupling, say, open these centers for, um, yeah, Filipino helpers. I mean, I can't sit here because I, I'm sitting here on a Saturday and weekend with kids <laughs> because of um, uh, this extraordinary community that's supporting us. Um, but it's also just, you know, opening up that uh, debate, discussion, and finding ways to tie in. And therefore, the Future Studio program has been really interesting because it's stakeholder collaboration. You can't, you can't solve it by one entity. You actually have to do it with three to four public-private um, partnership programs, which I really believe in, so, uh, yeah. And I think for that reason, and for its amplification of, um, of the, the unequal access to space and the privilege inherent in that, I think, Cathy, what you've brought up is, is probably symbolic of the challenges facing Hong Kong and everything we've been talking about today. Um, and thank you for bringing it up, and thank you, everyone, for your responses and your time on the panel today. Um, we have to wrap it up there for time. Um, but it, it's, a, it's a conversation that can definitely go on over lunch. Thanks, everyone. Thank